Hi guys and welcome to episode, I haven't got a clue, of the No Bullshit Anxiety Talk Show. I'm really, really excited to share this conversation with you today. I'm speaking with Professor Graeme Davey. Graeme is an emeritus professor of psychology at the University of Sussex and he's an avid researcher on anxiety mental health in general uh, and specifically anxiety and worry he's also a former president of the british psychological society and is currently editor-in-chief of the journal of experimental psychopathology which publishes cutting-edge research on anxiety and anxiety related problems his book is called the anxiety epidemic the causes of our modern day anxieties it's one of the greatest books i've read on anxiety full of incredible information and insight um, it was an absolute pleasure to speak with him and i, I thank graves so much for his time if you if you are enjoying this if you've written in i want to say thank you so much it means a whole lot uh, the more and more research I do, the more I realize just how went from speaking to people, just how little understanding there is around their anxiety and what's actually going on in general, which is something I've actually taken for granted. Um, but Graham gets into this uh, and his book teaches it. Understanding is so incredibly important. So if you are finding this beneficial, please consider sharing it with someone. There's so many people struggling and, and living in a constant state of acute stress, which is so bad for our health. And this can really help people kind of just get control of their anxiety and, uh, and take the necessary steps to turn their life around. So ramble over. I hope you enjoy this episode. really informal this podcast and the reason I do it is like I was tremendously affected by anxiety panic attacks and the associated depression that comes along with it for years and over a very long painful arduous journey I kind of figured out how to how to get my life together or at least my anxiety together still working on the ladder um, and I just started writing about anxiety and then I kind of just said I, I'd do a podcast and I've never reached out to someone whose book I read before I picked your book up in Singapore a few months ago I just read the back of it I said oh shit this sounds interesting and uh, yeah I loved it it was so informative I hadn't read a book like that and anxiety probably ever that went into such detail especially on the on the specific disorders um, yeah. and i thought it's fantastic so i just thought i'd chance my arm and send you an email and now we're talking so i'm very grateful for that and hopefully hopefully we can uh have a good chat and and share some inspiration to help others out of it so why don't we just kick things off with you giving a brief introduction to yourself and the work you do? Yeah, I'm. Um, I've basically been for the last thirty years or so um, a researcher, uh, and my interest was in mental health problems and, and specifically in anxiety and, and 
anxiety disorders and depression. Um, and I've been working at that for 20 or 30 years or so, which is quite a privilege, uh, you know, uh, because I've suffered anxiety problems myself in the past. Uh, and it was, it was very revealing to actually work in research and look at what the causes of, of some of the anxiety problems are. Um, in particular, um, we've done a, quite a bit of research now on pathological worrying, which is a very significant form of anxiety. And for many people, it's very distressing um, when they're unable to control their worrying. So uh, in some of the research, we've now developed um, a pretty good model of the causes of what makes people become pathological worriers. Um, pathological worries aren't born. Uh, for example, worriers will often try to tell you that they're a born worrier, but uh, worriers aren't born. Uh, they're made over time. Uh, and so one of the things that we've looked at in our research, and, it's, uh, and I talk about that in the book as well, one of the things that we've um, looked at is, is what causes that? What causes people to go from being normally anxious, which most people are, uh, to becoming pathologically anxious uh, in, in a form that is distressing and is disabling. People can't mm. get on with their lives when they suffer um, anxieties of that kind of level. So uh, that's largely what I've been doing um, in terms of um, research. So uh, at the point I am now, I thought it was uh, important that I write about the possible causes of anxiety disorders because we hear a lot uh, that there are more books than there are stars in the sky on, on <laughs> health problems generally but they tend to be books that say things like uh, you have these symptoms these are your problems here's how you solve them they don't tell you very much about where um, all those symptoms came from and how you acquired those, those kinds of uh, problems in the first place and I, hmm. I think for me certainly for me that was three quarters of the battle was understanding where it came from yeah and i i really loved and appreciated how you went about that in the book i i have not seen that in, in in a book on anxiety before and there were a lot i've you know it's going back 18 or nearly 19 years ago now to when I had my first panic attack and I had no understanding then and in essence I've read about it an awful lot and I would consider myself pretty well informed but um, reading about the specific disorders and the specific symptoms that can kind of like distinguish the, the, the specific causes and both the specific symptoms is, is something I, I've never seen before. So I think you talk about like tension headaches being more common with general anxiety disorder, correct me if I'm wrong, in this one. And I, I thought that was just absolutely fascinating that you were able to kind of relate the symptom to the cause and, and it was just so, so fascinating. So. Um, yeah, that, that was great. Um, and what would you say are, because obviously when we're talking about worry, worry is massive these days and, and we're all, you know, I don't like, 
obviously over with Brexit is probably the UK is receiving like worrying uh, on precedental levels right now. But what are some of the biggest causes of this kind of anxiety epidemic? Well, uh, often there are, you know, many of the causes of anxiety um, can be uh, can be pinpointed as quite traditional causes. You know, we, we know that there are things like uh, poverty, poor health, unemployment, uh, and the stresses that come from those kinds of things. Um, that, that they are traditional causes mm -hmm. of anxiety, and uh, they're still there, but they're there in different forms uh, uh, today. Um, for example, um, we're all living longer because medicine has made some amazing advances in the last 50 years. We're all living much longer, but we're all living much longer, very often, with disabilities because mm -hmm. we're not dying as quickly. Dementia is one, one such example, and so there are added stresses there. Um, poverty is still with us, um, and uh, for example, um, uh, it's still with us, but it's not there as much as it was 50 years ago, let's say, in many countries. But what we have now is poverty gap. Uh, uh, and uh, in, in many countries, including the US and, and the UK, there is a big, um, big gap between the poorest and the richest people. And what we get now is this poverty gap kind of stress. Everyone's stressed, even the people at the top end mm -hmm. who are... Uh, of money are stressed because they have to try and stay there at the top of the pile. Um, and of course, those at the bottom of the pile are struggling uh, to get up the pile. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it's not just poverty, it's a poverty gap stress as well. Um, and again, unemployment is not so much that you might be unemployed, it's the stresses you have to go through to get the job you want these days. Yeah. You the average is something like 14, 15 interviews for a graduate uh, to get the kind of job that they want. So there are loads of us. They're the kind of traditional stresses that causes anxiety. Um, but there are new ones. My goodness, there are new ones. And most of them are linked to the internet to, uh, and to technology. Um, yeah. uh, and news. We are uh, one of the things in the book that I talk very specifically about, and at length, is negative news. Uh, we have 24-hour 24 um, 24-hour news news programs. We have alerts on our iPhones and, and smartphones to tell us about what's going on in the world. And a lot of it is just presented very negatively and, uh, mm. and, very, and very vividly now. Uh, yeah. we, get, we get things, uh, we get things, for example, um, in um, in the news, where you know, if there's a terrorist attack, for example, we get a live image immediately from uh, whoever's there from their phones. Uh, yeah. Things. So it's it's in your living room, it's in your kitchen immediately, and it's often quite stressful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I like it, it, it. The news just becomes so terrifying and. And, and when you go into politics and things like that, especially what's going on in the UK and the kind of Trump, Trump, um, Trump era, 
it's like you know the rise of fake news and what's real and the hashtag truth and everybody having polarizing beliefs and all this kind of clickbait mentality and you you quote Mar Marcus Aurelius in the in the book everything we hear is an opinion not fact and everything we see is perspective and not the truth um, just love that yeah, quote and uh, and basically um, in, in, in an era where politics is becoming more and more divisive uh, people are not interested uh, in truth they're interested in winning an argument uh, and they will use lies, fake news, to try and win an argument. And for the average person, uh, if you don't know what's real and what's not real, uh, that's one of the biggest stresses we we can go through these days. Um, um, basically, I don't see that going away for a while. No, no, and I I also see is is a lot of it is. The time, like I notice myself, the time I can waste on Instagram or Facebook, you know, especially, and it's more if I'm in a bad mood, like if I'm particularly stressed, even though that's the one thing I shouldn't be going near, it's like I'll just let the let it feed my fury, if you will. I just keep allowing myself to get sucked into like eventually I'm here what am I doing you know with these apps on my phone just delete them and get rid of them and then download them a few days later again and fall for the fall for the same cycle time and again are, are you active yourself on you said you I you speak candidly about it in the book as well about your struggles younger with, with anxiety and panic attacks, are, are you, do you play much of a role on social media? I, I, I do. Um, I, I'm on Twitter, I uh, and I I tend to use these different social medias very selectively. So, the Twitter, I I talk almost so solely about mental health issues, and uh, what I try to do is is to um, is, is to on Twitter post stuff that's about uh, research on mental health problems generally, anxiety in particular. Um, sometimes I slip into a little bit of political rhetoric. Uh, <laughs> or the ashes. These days, yes. Yeah, or the ashes, yeah. <laughs> uh, basically, but I, I use Twitter to actually converse with other people who are interested in mental health problems and also to inform, if I can, about research. Um, I use Facebook just for family, uh, for example, uh, and just keep me in touch with family. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm not on Instagram. so I I, Stay I, away. That's yeah. the worst. I think, yeah, uh, it, 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 uh, social media is, is, is certainly a curse for, for youngsters. Mm. Uh, and uh, young people tend to get extremely stressed by social media because they they think that for them, that's the way in which they think they make friends. Mm -hmm. um, uh, before social media, you had to go out and get to know people properly. But now uh, the metric is that the number of uh, friends or followers you have on social media is how popular you are. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I, I, someone told me recently, and I just love this, this, is, this kind of sums up for me 
uh, social media for youngsters uh, is is um, they use Facebook to, to show uh, uh, they use Facebook to show um, themselves to their family. So it's, that's their acceptable okay. face, uh, which is acceptable to the family. They use Instagram. Uh, they use Instagram to project their perfect self, uh, and, and most people do that. So uh, that that is kind of the issue with that kind of thing. Of course, is that all you see on Instagram, for example, and and Facebook, in, in, to some extent, is um, the perfect lives that other people supposedly have, but they're not perfect lives because they're mm. just posting the perfect. They're not posting bad bits, um, so you can often feel inferior. Uh, and, and you know it does hit self-esteem if if you don't have as many friends as other people and so on. And it's that um, uh, you know uh, fear of missing out as well. Yeah. Social that with it. So for youngsters particularly, um, uh, it, 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 it's a bit of a curse, I think, and it's perpetual connect connectivity again. You know. Screen it's time going on because it's twenty four seven. This yeah. whole thing is twenty four seven. Yeah, I mean, out here in Bali, it's um, eat, like you have holiday makers, you have people like online professionals who just live and work here, and um, you have every type of you know from every different culture, and the the common thread amongst it all is is how you present yourself online it seems and i even see it like i mean i i'm not going to say i'm i'm you know i'm no saint in the area i i i often just think about like if i do post something why am i doing it or like you know what's and and the answer is rarely good for me anyway but it's just like I know for a fact from speaking with friends and from you know just like being in real conversations how false it is like it's not even a little bit false I mean it is it's completely taking the piss out of reality um, and I think I think there's so like so the person who's doing it is affected as well because it becomes avo- avoidance. And you talk big about avoidance in your book too. Maybe we can get to that. But also then their friends consuming it are, are affected because, and maybe their following, if they're an influencer or anything, are affected because they, they think that's the life that they want to live when in actual fact, they have no idea what's going on inside that person's mind. Um, yeah. I think I think one of the, one of the facts that's sort of come out recently is that um, not just youngsters, but most people have significantly fewer confidants as friends than they used to have. Um, and at, at least part of the reason for that is that uh, is social media um, and corresponding with somebody on social media or being part of a network of people on social. media, it's not the same as having a genuine, genuine confidant as a mm. friend to talk to about personal issues and so on. And, and I think that's again, that, that's something that's slightly stressing for people because um, you know, very often people do need someone they can 
find it. You wouldn't do that on Facebook, for example. Yeah, and that research, I'm familiar with that research. I think it was like most people, I don't know, however many years ago, they had three or something that they would really, really trust, and now most people, they don't have anyone. Yeah, and yeah. That's insane. And a, a part of that is, is the facade that's been presented and even vulnerability being exposed on social media for maybe for likes and validation or maybe it's a belief that we're kind of that's instilled within us that this is going to heal us um but the thought of actually telling sitting down with a friend who's you know there's a high probability unfortunately that the friend is experiencing similar similar trauma to actually sit down with them and go listen mate i'm i'm kind of struggling here and those those conversations can be so cathartic and freeing because you know you're not alone but it's that, that kind of reluctance it's all gone online it's, that's a funny one to me but terrifying you touched on and i i one of the things i really appreciate it like if you if if I flash you the book, I've highlighted all over the place on this one. But one of the things I really appreciated is your how candid and honest you were in writing the book, and how unwilling you were to to kind of paint it with roses. Like anxiety is a serious problem, um, and we all want to believe we're fine when, in actual fact, when you're suffering with an anxiety disorder you know intuitively that you're not fine. Um, being told you're fine does not help you. When I was told I was fine, it actually made things like 10 times worse. Um, but you also, you also talk about increased uh, mortality rates and the higher levels of cardiovascular disease in a particular study where men over 40 with a lifelong diagnosis of general anxiety disorder were two and a half times more likely to to die of cancer than those without now obviously to the to the naked ear who's anxious that's a that's a scary fact but i mean i really appreciate it because i i i've always believed it to be true anyway so just to see it written there it kind of like goes you know, there are tools and techniques you can you can do to manage this, but you have to take ownership of it and you have to be responsible for your own health and some things you might not be able to do as well as you wanted to do before this kind of eruption happened. But I think it's important. I think that's just a part of anxiety that no one really talks about, just how damaging it can be. Not, yeah. not to like. I mean, if if cancer, uh, you know, like I'm here going, but if cancer doesn't get you, like it's like the depression that comes with it, um, mm. and all eventualities that aren't good unless you take action. No, absolutely, and I think um, I, this is something that doesn't get highlighted enough, as you say. Uh, if you have lifelong anxiety, um, it will shorten your life. Uh, we don't know how that happens. We know that there, that uh, anxiety, in particular, and lifelong anxiety and, and disabling anxiety, is a risk factor for early mortality. So, basically, um, 
you know, it should be considered, uh, along with things like cancer and cardiovascular disease, as a, as a real risk to, to early mortality. Um, and as I said in the book, anxiety is a strange thing. And if you, if you try and understand what anxiety is, uh, it's an emotion. But it wouldn't still be with us if, in some form, it wasn't a useful emotion. And, and there have been some really cute little studies done uh, on uh, accidental death. And, and if you're a high anxious person, you're, you're significantly less likely in your 20s and 30s, if you're a high anxious person, you're significantly less likely to die an accidental death than if you're not anxious. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of helping you, but then uh, as you get older, it takes it away with the other hand. And, uh, mm. and if you look at that in evolutionary terms, of course, what it kind of implies is anxiety sees you through uh, that period of your life when you're going to be reproductive, um, uh, and uh, sees you through and helps you survive a little bit better than someone who's non-anxious. But once you produce your kids and you've propagated your genes. Anxiety doesn't care about you anymore. All right, um, so note to self, no kids. <laughs> anxiety is there just to if you like. If you, if you want to take a traditional evolutionary view on it, anxiety is there simply to make sure you propagate your genes into future uh, into future generations. And then, and then okay, uh, done with you now. Uh, off you go. Um, uh. <laughs> I can't wait for the girlfriend to listen to listen to this because because uh, I was saying uh, I was telling her I was interviewing you and she heard me raving about the book when I was reading and she said oh that's so cool I can't wait to hear it so there you go Sharka no kids <laughs> <laughs> so can we talk about you because I, obviously there's the, the difference and you talk about this in the book as well like the difference between stress and anxiety which which I think a lot of people maybe don't have an anxiety disorder, but believe they're, they're kind of spiraling into that. They're flirting on the edges because they're believing that there's something worse going on than there actually is. Yeah, yeah. I, I, for me, um, the distinction between stress and anxiety is very blurred. I, I just, I mean, the two just for me and my understanding of these things that, that they, they are kind of slightly different aspects of the same thing. Um, stress tends to be uh, tends, tends to be more physiological uh, than, than pure anxiety, which can be a very cognitive. Pure anxiety is very cognitive. It's about worrying. It's about uh, your cognitive processes um, uh, making you, if you like, behave in certain ways that. Um, will make you develop symptoms of anxiety disorders and things like that. But stress is something I think we all experience again. We're going through a difficult time at work, family problems, relationships. We get those stress reactions, and they're, they're, they're very physiological in many ways. You know, that gut feeling, um, heart rate problems, um, and so on. So, uh, you know. They're the same kind of things, if you like. It, it's trying to deal with the threats and challenges of everyday life. Um, 
But one of the things that we do know is that many of the anxiety disorders themselves, they, they actually begin at times of stress in a person's life. So there's a link there somewhere. What we don't know, and that really is the $64,000 question, is why some people, when they go through a period of stress, why do they develop quite specific symptoms like, you know, OCD? Why, why do they suddenly get obsessive thoughts? Why? Uh, do they get compulsions to check things uh, and so on? Uh, whereas someone else would just get panic attacks. Uh, why do they get panic attacks from periods of stress in their life? Mm. Uh, and then for other people, um, it will be pathological worrying uh, and the tensions that occur with pathological worrying. We just don't know um, why some people develop one uh, rather than another. And then in other cases, some people don't develop any at all. Hmm. They're lucky. Yes. <laughs> the lucky ones. Um, that's, I mean, it is fascinating and you do wonder. Obviously, we have more of an idea when it comes to PTSD, which you reference in the, in the, uh, in the book as well. Um, it's so great the way you go through and explain the different disorders and, and what they actually are because there's, there's an awful lot of confusion out there around them. Um, and uh, there is, you know, you talk about childhood adversity and I think a lot of anxiety seems to stem from childhood, but where many of us would have a, would be going parents immediately, but there's all sorts of things that go on in childhood that can actually give rise to this eruption uh, of anxiety later on in life and you know from I think you say asthma and you know a dog dying or anything like that you know a dog dying I can understand um, I know I was very very upset when my dog died um, but I have asthma and I never I, I that's the first time I ever read that that can actually be a contributing factor to anxiety later on in life. Again, I think with something like asthma, uh, I, I, there's not a direct link there. I think again, what happens? What's important uh, in, in terms of what happens to you in childhood, whether it's asthma or a dog dying or whatever, what is important is is the parenting for you that goes with that. Um, for example. Um, some parents uh, who have children with asthma will, if you like, play up um, an ill role uh, and, and develop anxieties such as that, uh, uh, and what you know, make the child worry, if you like, in many ways, because of their form of parenting, make the child worry about the asthma. Um, I do talk about, um, I think, what's it called helicopter parents. And, uh, uh, and uh, um, what was it, snowplow parents as well, who, who uh, try to clear uh, their children's life entirely, um, uh, or all of the threats and challenges in their life, they snowplow them all away mm. in front of the child so the child doesn't have to deal with them. Well, if that's the case, then there's a real risk of the child not learning how to cope with threats because they're never allowed to cope themselves with threats. Uh, challenges. Uh, and there's also, again, research has shown this, that if you have that style of parenting, 
you run the risk, and I, I emphasize the word, it's only a risk, you run the risk um, of, of, of that child being alerted to lots and lots of uh, uh, threats and challenges that they wouldn't, um, they wouldn't otherwise be alerted to. And of course, that makes them see the world as a threatening place. And as soon as you see the world as a threatening place, um, you're again at high risk of developing anxiety problems. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. It's 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 so interesting. And and the, what what's really alarming is that it's the the kind of coddling or helicopter parent, parent snowplow parenting is becoming. It seems to be becoming more and more mainstream it's like even though the research is like so vast and evident and everywhere to say that like you know there's a big risk here and we see that with the the i generation the young teenagers there's the suicide numbers are kind of higher than ever for that for that age range and that generation and depression, anxiety numbers, and I mean, the smartphones play a role as well. There's a lot playing a role, but also that overprotectiveness where they're not allowed to go out. And, and I think it's because, of, you know, you can give them an iPad and they can sit down and be entertained by that as opposed to being out climbing trees and just kind of, you know, running amok outside. There was a really interesting or funny poem. Oh, here it is. You put in there uh, <laughs> about the kind of parenting. Um, it, it, it's, uh, so it's not you, it's Philip Larkin's famous, and you do say harsh poem. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with faults they had and add some extra just for you. <laughs> Yes, I think uh, yeah, it is harsh. <laughs> it is harsh. Um, Especially when but, it all comes uh, out of love. I, you know, again, we, we, we haven't had a lot of developmental psychopathology research yet. We're, you know, only in the last 10 years that we started doing research on how uh, what happens to you in childhood generally will then influence uh, common mental health problems like anxiety and depression. So we're only beginning to find those things out. But certainly... Um, you know, a parenting style, and there are lots of different kinds of parenting style, which I won't go into, but parenting style can have an influence on whether your child is going to grow up as an anxious person or not. Um, and again, you know, I can't blame parents. Uh, you know, you don't get a manual with a kid. Uh, you know, you, you have to kind of learn it as you go along. And of course, many parents, of course, quite rightly, want to do the best for their kids. And Overprotection is something that they uh, that they you know they see as being a positive thing, clearing the way of all the threats and challenges that their child is trying to come across. But it does have negative effects as well. Yeah, I think in the book I give the example of uh, one parents, uh, one set of parents who have a drone to follow their child to school every day. And, uh, um, oh and wow. Wow. Yeah, I'm starting to, I, like, I, I don't know if I, I'm, you know, I'm starting to think that there should be a, a, a guide handed out to parents on this stuff. 
I think there will be. There will be at some point. Yeah, when we when we just have uh, you know a few more details about how these effects uh, are generated. Yeah. Yeah, and another thing. I mean, we can't. We we shouldn't be expecting that too soon because. As you say in the book as well, I thought, like, I, I absolutely found this staggering how little the NHS, obviously, in the UK spends on mental health research. Like, you know, for every individual, it's, it's something like a pound fifty uh, compared to, how does that compare to a cancer patient to 200 and something pounds? It's uh, absolutely, I can't remember the exact figures, but, um, you know, it, it is not just in terms of, uh, of services, mental health services are, are really second class uh, to, to, you know, the more uh, uh, physical illnesses that are quite, you know, okay, fine, we expect that, that, that there should be more money going into facilities for life-threatening diseases such as cancer and cardiovascular diseases, but um, the gap between funding for those kinds of services and mental health services is absolutely staggering. And that is also something that rolls over into research. If you look at the money that goes into research for the causes of mental health problems, that's a difference compared with uh, other forms of medical research money. Mm. And again, one of the things that I wanted to do in this book was provide an accessible uh, coverage of what we know about the causes of individual anxiety problems, um, because that doesn't come out very often, you know, in, in, in other forms of writing. And we're still way behind in understanding the causes of mental health problems, common mental health problems like anxiety. Um, we need more funding and uh, uh, we need it soon because we are in an anxiety epidemic. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's the truth if I've ever heard it. Um, so before we just kind of roll into a little bit of, of what people... <laughs> give the listeners a bit of good news and what they can actually do. But you talk about avoidance, so, and how, like, I think the reference you give is a, a, a anxiety avoidance, or anxiety feeds avoidance like a glutton at a feast. Um, and if we could just talk about that so people understand, because I, you know, when I go through, like, I still get anxious and I still suffer with stress and, like, I still have to make key decisions and often I avoid them and I notice that, that like, after a while, you know, you're forced into this decision and it's that indecision that causes so much stress and so much anxiety and, and maybe a bit of depression as well. Um, and then when you actually just make a decision one way or the other, it, you, it's like phew, such a massive weight off the shoulder. So can you talk a bit, a little bit about avoidance and? Yeah, um, it, it, 
I suspect if there's one factor that, that converts a normal levels of anxiety into an anxiety disorder, it's regular avoidance of uh, anxiety situations. And, you know, just to give you some broad examples, I mean, it's a very natural response, mm. a very natural response to avoid things that you find anxiety provoking or threatening or challenging. You know, if you're a spider phobic, you don't go into a room if there's a spider in there, you avoid it. Um, if you're, if you're, uh, if you have panic attacks, then you learn very quickly not to go into the kinds of places where you might have a panic attack, or not even go to places where you think you might possibly have a panic mm. attack, and uh, that kind of thing. Um, if, if you're, uh, if you have OCD, uh, and let's say you're, uh, you know, you're. You don't like the, you have a fear of contamination. You don't go into toilet, public toilets. You know, you, you make sure uh, you don't go near anywhere that might contaminate. You know, that's a perfectly normal response. But one thing we, we have learned, and most forms of therapy uh, for anxiety problems are basically what we call exposure therapies, is that you, you know you have to get used to going. Uh, into contact in some way with those things that you've been trying to avoid. Uh, and the reason for that is not that, you know, you wouldn't kick, if your kid, if your kid brother uh, can't swim or is frightened of water, the worst thing you can do is just throw them into the swimming pool. Because mm -hmm. um, that's just going to be much worse. What you have to teach someone or what you have to learn is that uh, what it is that you are fearing uh, doesn't cause the things that you think it's going to cause, uh, which is often the case with anxiety problems. Basically, uh, people develop very, very biased ways of thinking about something. Um, and the issue is that as long as you're avoiding something that you're anxious about, that just maintains the anxiety because your brain is saying to itself, I've avoided that again, so therefore that thing must be threatened. It must be anxious. Uh, it must cause anxiety, uh, and that's what we have to get rid of. We have to get rid of that. Yeah, and I, I love it. I, I love that you talk talk about exposure therapy as a, as opposed to. I think you mentioned avoiding the flooding technique, which is also common commonly used in other therapies. But in my experience, it's a deadly way to, to go about dealing with anxiety. So you're know, one thing that um, still gives me an awful lot of anxiety today is, is public speaking. I just, um, I mean, most people get anxiety over that, but when... When, That's not unusual. Yeah, I was, I was, I was always kind of like even shy reading out in the classroom or anything. But when I had my first panic attack, it was like, I, I, I was repeating first year in college. So I was getting to that stage where I was going to be made do presentations, and um, I remember a girl fainting at the top of the room, and like I was, I, I managed to squirm my way out of them and just have other people in the group actually give the presentation and I'd have to answer a question and like, you know, it could, I would like, cause this was at the, at the worst. And I was just like a nervous wreck the whole time, sweating bullets. I mean, 
I was just terrible at like my social anxiety was through the roof back then and so and I remember later on when I got things that improved and I'd, I'd give small presentations at work to clients and there was one time I was with my boss and I was with this new colleague and I was pretty much checked out of the job at then and and you know it wasn't it wasn't a surprise everyone kind of like it was all in good faith um but I I guess I didn't I don't know what happened on this particular day, but I had a panic attack while I was presenting. There eight people around me in my room, new colleague and my, and my boss, and I'm just here going, oh shit. And I just like, I, I, I don't know, like when panic attacks, you can't continue. It just kind of shuts you down. And I had to say in that moment, like, oh, I'm sorry, and put my head down. Like, and it was very obvious that, you know, something had come over me. But and just trying to like bluff your way out of it and just yeah. you know like fortunately my my boss was able to take over and did so and he knew I had a history of anxiety anyway so he was able to step in and I was lucky in that but it's still like you know when you're it, it, it performing and you experience that that's kind of like always stopped me from actually making a decision to do something and then like I've gone to Toastmasters I've I've pushed myself down that but then I've built up a safety net within Toastmasters so now I'm here going like I keep looking at people on bigger stages and I keep going I should be able to do that so I would beat myself up on that and then I'm not applying exposure therapy or you know progressive desensitization which so recently I just here going okay I'm going to do I'm going to do a workshop for, for eight people and I'm going to purposely limit eight people in the room because I want to give them value and if I'm sweating sweating bricks and like not able to function because I'm terrified that there's an audience of 20, 30, 40, 50 people in front of me, it could go great but it could also go disastrously wrong and I'd, I'd rather play the long game and build up my confidence and do a few of those smaller ones on a monthly basis and then build it up further and maybe do bigger ones if it's something I enjoy but um, so I, 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 I uh, sorry go, do go no on. no no go on I, I don't know what I was going to say I was rambling well no I think I think that's uh, what what you're doing there is, is 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 one of the best ways to do it I mean in the book I talk about my own social anxiety when I was a youngster uh, I was I was terribly shy um, and if I had to do any public speaking at school or, or in college or whatever, I'd feign illness. You know, I would. I wouldn't turn up. Um, but somewhere along the line, <laughs> that has changed. Uh, and I didn't. I did. You know, sort of say, right, I'm going to get up in front of a, a crowd of 500 and give a, you know, uh, a, a, you know, the Gettysburg speech or anything. Um, I. Uh, it obviously. Um, through, through my college career and then later as a lecturer, you, you were you were kind of just exposed to it slowly. And I remember, you know, I remember my very first kind of uh, seminars I gave as a postgraduate student, and uh, I was lucky. I sat down in front of half a dozen people, uh, and, and that gives you that little bit of courage to then go on, uh, you know, to a slightly bigger stage. Uh, when I first started lecturing, I was only lecturing in front of about 20, 30 people. 
now it's three to four hundred, five hundred people at a go. Um, uh, wow. Because students have increased. Oh, um, you know, I, I, I still get a little bit anxious whenever I'm giving a, a, a presentation, whether it's a research presentation, whether it's a keynote speech on something. Uh, and that, again, you know, I don't. I think it's important not to misinterpret that kind of slight anxiety mm. as being uh, as being pathological. It's not wrong. It's perfectly good yeah. at focusing. At that um, level, you're going to perform better. Yeah, at that level. Yeah, and that's what anxiety in its normal form is for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we. When you decided you wanted to be a professor, was that something that you were here going, okay, I'm going to have to overcome this now? Or was it kind of like you had overcome it through and then decided you were going to go down the professor route? No, I think, um, you know, I, I never actually, like most things in life, for many people, you know, I didn't make an active decision to be where I am now. Uh, it's just as life goes on, uh, you make little decisions here and there, and then suddenly you find you're in this crazy position where you're rising up with anxiety and stuff, and, uh, <laughs> and search on it, and things like that, and then giving keynote spe uh, speeches on it. Um, I didn't make a decision, uh, but you know that kind of life route gives you that little bit of exposure you need along the way, and then moves you on, uh, and so on. Um, um, and I think. That's what happened, you know. I'm, I'm still, even at my age now, uh, I'm still hoping that I'll get picked for England under 21s and soccer. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's. Oh, you never know. <laughs> so what? What kind of? Because you give some great tips towards the end of the book, and I, I'm getting conscious of the time now. I don't want to keep you too long, but what? What would be some of the tips you would? Give to someone that is dealing with acute anxiety right now. Well, I think one of the things that I mentioned at the beginning of that final chapter, where I do talk about provide some tips about how you can go about uh, possibly managing your anxiety and worrying yourself. Uh, but one of the things I say right at the beginning is there is no substitute for actually understanding where your anxiety comes from. And by that, I don't mean what, you know, I don't mean, don't spend time on your own trying to understand your own uh, anxiety. Try and find out from what's available in the research literature. And, and I've tried to put that research literature in an accessible form in the book. And so you, you could absolutely succeed so in you, that. Uh, and, and once you, uh, for me, and, and my various anxiety issues that I had, um, uh, understanding where it came from in a kind of scientific sense uh, was so important uh, because then I could really get a, my head around how to manage it. Um, and I think that's the first thing. That, that's the first thing. I mean, even even well-known and uh, you know, gold standard therapies like CBT often don't worry too much about where the causes, you know, about, you know, the client understanding the causes mm -hmm. of where their, say, their panic disorder, their OCD has come from. Um, 
They just try and treat who you are here and now. And I think that's important. Um, but I do, I think what I'm trying to say is basically that there are very few accessible outlets that would give the average person who is anxious uh, some clear idea about the science behind their particular anxiety problem. And, uh, and, you know, maybe we'll move on uh, in the next 10, 20 years to providing lots of accessible kinds of uh, reviews for, for the ordinary individual uh, about how, uh, what the science is behind their problem. Uh, so that's the first thing. And I, I say to people, don't, go, don't just go to my book and read chapter 12 because it's got how to manage your anxiety. Mm, yeah. read, the, read the rest of it because that will set the stage for you then trying to use a few tips. Um, and the main tips are one, one of the things that we know uh, is so important in anxiety is controlling, if you cannot control, but managing your moods. Uh, negative moods uh, generally by negative moods, I mean not just anxiety, but sadness, uh, uh, anger, uh, disgust, uh, tiredness even, pain, all of those kinds of things, those negative kind of emotions are things which will uh, affect your attention and your memory and will actually make you more anxious uh, by actually making you focus more on threat challenging things. So one of the first things we want to do is find ways for you as an individual to, to lift your mood if you're feeling um, uh, stressed in some way. And I provide a few tips on that, just simple tips that hopefully you can do wherever you are. Um, uh, I, I mentioned some, for example, make sure you can, if you can li listen to some uplifting music, that you particularly like, that's good. Yes, you um, listed the top 10 happy songs yeah. ever. I think I shared them. Yeah, and, uh, and basically, yeah, uh, uh, yeah I, think, I think it was a Queen song that actually came top. Yeah, oh, there's some crackers in there. It, it was like an après ski playlist. It was, yes, yeah. But, you know, again, most people will listen to those songs and say, okay, yeah, you'll start nodding, you'll tapping yeah. your feet. Yeah, yeah, I'm feeling yeah. good. And the so ABBA. Again, that's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, I crossed that one off my list. But, uh, yeah. Oh no, I, I listened to the whole album. Uh, things like that. Uh, lifting your mood in some ways is, is, is desperately important. But exercise will do it as well. Take some you know, short breaks, do some exercise if you can. Even if it's just walking around the block. Mm. Uh, that in itself has been shown to, to, to help. Just that commitment to get up if you're in really that biggest slump can have such a profound impact. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we often think we have to go to the gym and do 10 hours or, or, you know, run up a mountain or something like that. But if you're, you know, it's that baby steps, we'll, we'll get yeah. you there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, aromas can help as well, having aromas around the house. Uh, and uh, and uh, also laughter. And I, you know, I suggested having on your laptop, uh, you know, one of your favorite comedy shows or something, so you can just get out of the moment for a, 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 a stressful moment. And, uh, so lifting moods is important. And then uh, there are some more structured uh, exercises you can, you can attempt in that chapter as well, as well as trying to 
think more positively about your worrying um, and, and uh, things such as that. Mm. That's amazing. I, I want to thank you again so much for, for coming on. Um, I love the book. I, if, if I read that 18 years ago, it would have had like the most profound impact on my life as it, and as if to say that I, I wouldn't have endured 13 years of panic, anxiety and depression because I would have got the understanding I needed when I needed instead of running away, just trying, looking for cures um, and allowing it to compound and essentially being in avoidance without actually knowing that I was being in avoidance. So guys, if you're listening and you don't really understand what's going on, I highly recommend you to run out and get the anxiety epidemic, the causes of our modern day anxieties by Graham Davy. Graham, thank you so much for coming on. Is there any last words you would like to share? Or where, where can people find you and get the book? Um, well, the books in, in, in most uh, bookshops uh, in the UK, um, it's uh, available in some other countries in, in bookshops. As certainly well. in Singapore. Um, and of course, you can, if you want to buy it on Amazon, uh, it's there and it's available. Uh, it, there's also an audio version of the book if you have difficulty slogging through uh, umpteen pages of written words. Um, and yes, I, I, do, I do hope it helps people. Um, that's the reason I wrote it. Uh, my, my, um, if you like, my journey through life has been an interesting one in the sense that I started off as a very, very anxious kid with lots of anxiety problems. Uh, I'm still an anxious person, but uh, at least I know where my anxiety comes from now. And, uh, and that helps an awful lot. And that was one of the purposes in the book. I love that. Just, just owning it and, and, uh, and it will, by, by doing that, you're going to have such a greater quality of life. Um, so thank you so much for your time. And that is a wrap. Thank you for hanging out with us today and for tuning in. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you. Thank you to my guest as always, Graham. It was an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you to all the guests that have come on so far and given up their time. I really appreciate it. Before you go, if you do know someone struggling with anxiety that you believe could benefit from this, please do consider sharing it with them. If you could spare a minute, please consider jumping on and leaving a review on iTunes. It's very much appreciated. And if you have any suggestions or ideas you would like to share with me, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can do so through my website, nickycullen.com, or just sending me an email, nicky at nickycullen.com. Thanks again, and have a great day.